to V Back Birth Stories, a podcast where Australians share their journey to a vaginal birth after cesarean. We are a safe haven for women to share their own VBAC journeys and through these personal experiences, educate and empower listeners. I'm your host, Mel. And I'm your host, Steph. And this is VBAC Birth Stories. Hi, it's Mel here. Welcome to the first episode of the VBAC Birth Stories podcast. Today we hear from our host, Steph, whose first birth with Oscar began as a natural labour, which turned into an emergency caesarean. Two and a half years later, she went on to have a successful unmedicated VBAC with Max. In between their births, Steph experienced a loss. Steph is passionate about advocating for women to feel control of their birth process, no matter what the outcome. We hope you enjoy listening to her VBAC journey. So Steph, could you tell us about Oscar's birth and what led to you having a cesarean with him? Oscar was my first baby and I had a very easy, luckily easy pregnancy with him. Everything went completely normally for nine months and then when it came to the time to go into hospital, I decided that I wanted to be booked into a birth centre to give myself the opportunity for a natural birth. On the day that my waters broke, I called the birth centre and they let me know that I should probably stay home and just get some rest. Uh, The contractions weren't close enough. How many weeks were you, Steph? Oh, at that point, I was right on my due date when my waters broke. In the weeks preceding that, I had been sort of given the option of an elective Caesar because it was estimated that Oscar would be a lot larger than he actually was. They were estimating, I think, a four to six kilo baby, but he actually ended up being 3.7. So he was still still on the largest side. But I think that sort of goes to show that, you know, we shouldn't sort of take everything we see on the ultrasound as gospel. So that's just an interesting aside. So I was given those options in the lead up to the birth, but we continued on wanting to go to the birth centre. And then on the night where my waters broke, you know, I was sort of told to just relax and stay at home for as long as I could and try and time contractions, which we did. The contractions were about 30 minutes apart still. So I went to sleep. Um, I tried to get as much sleep as I could. And then when I woke up in the morning, the contractions had disappeared. I called the hospital and they said just to come in uh, later on that day around lunchtime. So we did that. Uh, When we arrived at the hospital, I was getting sort of weak contractions, but nothing that was close enough for them to admit me. So we went for a walk and, you know, tried to relax. We came back to the birth centre and an obstetrician was called in from the labour ward. She came across and she had a chat to us and she said, look, you, you know, your waters have been broken for about over 12 hours now. So we do recommend induction at this point in time. That would involve you coming from the birth centre across to the labour ward and obviously starting the induction process. I wish I had known (laughs) at that point that I could have actually said no. Had it not been for the hospital protocol on admitting women whose contractions aren't close enough together. So I believe with a first baby, you need to have contractions that are about five minutes to seven minutes close together before they admit you. At that stage, because mine were too far apart, this was part of the reason an induction was said to be necessary. But I think in hindsight, I probably would have progressed to natural labour without the induction Uh, For us, what the induction did was actually set the stage for a cascade of intervention during my first birth. But we didn't know, you know, my husband and I were going along with what the hospital recommended and we knew that, you know, they would do the right thing by us and, you know, we, we had faith in them and faith in the process. So we made that decision to transfer to the labour ward and for me to be induced at about 6pm that evening. 
as you know, I guess, going into hospital for the first time, you're, you know, you're very anxious. It's your first birth. You're in a very vulnerable state. You know, the first nurse came in to sort of uh, try and find a vein, which she couldn't really do, probably because I was you know, feeling that way. Then the second nurse was called in, the third nurse. (laughs) They all were sticking needles into my arms and I had bruises up and down my arms and it was very painful and I was becoming increasingly anxious about the whole thing. And all this time I'm having very low level contractions. So they were still probably about 15 minutes apart, I would say. At this point in time, I was waiting thinking, wow, what's going to happen now? They, they finally called a doctor in to find this elusive vein <laughs> and um, the injection was kicked off. I had a lovely midwife who was there with me talking us through everything. I was breathing through contractions. I was feeling in control. I was feeling fine. And I started to try a little bit of gas to sort of help me get through some of the more intense contractions as they were becoming closer and closer. By this point, it was probably 10 o'clock at night and it was nearing time for that midwife to leave. We had a really good rapport, her and I, and we were sort of joking with each other. She was helping me to relax, obviously, and I felt very in control of the situation. I joked around with her and said, oh, please don't leave me, as she was sort of leaving her shift. And she said, you know, you're going to be fine and you've got this. So she left and another midwife came in to take her place. That point in time, the contractions were starting to come closer together and I felt the need for a different type of pain relief. I actually wanted to get into the shower, but I couldn't because I was attached to the IV. (laughs) And the, the midwife was saying to me, oh no, you can't do that. So I immediately felt restricted, you know, and that that was a horrible feeling when, when you're going through this pain that you haven't experienced before to feel restricted is not ideal. I got to the point where they were monitoring the baby's heartbeat and so they decided they wanted to put a chip on him because the doppel around my waist wasn't picking up his heartbeat and they weren't satisfied with that. So they placed a chip on Oscar's head uh, but I had to lay back while I was experiencing very close contractions on my back while they did this and they wanted me to stay in this position which was really uncomfortable I just wanted to move around I wanted to get in the shower I wanted to be I, I didn't want to be in this position but I was told that I had to stay there because they weren't actually happy with his heart rate so this particular midwife was telling me that his heart rate was dropping and that with every contraction it seemed to be worsening and they called this uh, bradycardia in the end so it's when there's an abnormally low heart rate. I was being told to sort of try to go to the toilet and the midwife was concerned that my bladder was full and that was preventing his head from descending so she was trying to resolve that issue And after I sort of couldn't go to the bathroom, she said, well, we're going to stick a catheter in. I don't know if anyone out there has experienced having a catheter before, but it's actually quite an uncomfortable process. I... I just, it it was something else that I had, had I have known I could have said no to, I probably would have. And the key piece of advice here is that there were a number of things at this stage that was sort of... I feel placed upon me that I couldn't say no to and I wish I had known that at the time so it was probably a lack of education on my part but also just the stress of being in in your first labor. So it was sort of from then on that they were calling in a team of obstetricians to come in and see if they could find out what was going on, why he wasn't descending and why his heart rate seemed to be worsening. They were telling me at this point that I could try to push. So they gave me about five minutes of pushing maybe and bearing in mind I had no pain relief at this point. I was on my back and being told to sort of 
push in a situation I was really uncomfortable and overwhelmed with. I can't remember exactly what happened at, at that point in time. I do remember being told that if this pushing didn't work, that they would have to take me down to theatre. And we again, they kept coming back to his heart rate as being the reason for that. And they said, look, he's, he's not descending and we're not happy with this. We need to take you downstairs. I also sort of felt as though, hold on a minute, why am I being taken down to theatre? What's going on? Why is this happening to me? I just sort of felt as though I completely didn't have a say or a voice and I wasn't actually there involved in it in any way. So I was sort of reeling on this bed as they took me down these corridors and then, uh, you know, the little room that you're waiting in before you go into the theatre. I was kept there for almost half an hour because they were coming out and telling me that the woman in front of me was having an emergency and was having a lot of blood loss. Uh, So they had actually the head of obstetrics in there with her. Uh, So just imagine that this is your first birth and you're in hospital and you've, you've been going through natural labor and you've just been told sorry, this isn't happening. We need to take you into theatre. Sorry, the woman ahead of you is actually almost dying. So you're just going to have to hang 10 for a minute. Um, So it was just, it was really, uh, yeah, I was sort of shaking at this point. I was experiencing back-to-back contractions. So the contractions were at the point where it was close, close to the end. I had fully dilated by this point as well. Um, Steph, were you connected to the drips still at this point or were these tra- contractions, were they your own now? Yeah, so the the induction drip had been turned off. Yes, uh, my, my labour had kicked off probably, oh, by this point, you know, up for a while I'd been having my own contractions. So this was all my body. I often wonder if I'd been kept upstairs and given the chance to birth naturally, if that would have happened or or what would have happened in that scenario. So eventually I was taken into a room. It felt like there were 20 people in the room. I don't know if there were, but that's what it felt like. There was someone who was giving me a spinal epidural and asking me to stay still while I was having contractions, which is really hard. Then we entered the theatre. I was just completely overwhelmed. I had no idea of <laughs> of why this was happening. I was very afraid. It wasn't what I wanted. I tried to focus on the doctor that was next to me, the one that had given me the epidural, and I tried to have a conversation with him about anything else, (laughs) sort of anything else we could think of. And obviously my husband, Mike, he was there as well. He was quite overwhelmed as well, though. He, He was, you know, speaking with doctors and he was trying to sort of get a handle on the situation. When I could sense that we'd been there for a while and we couldn't hear any crying, we started to panic a little bit and I asked my husband to go over and see what was going on. He did that and he returned to me saying that there were a group of people giving Oscar help to resuscitate him. He was was born not breathing and uh, he had a mask on him and he had all of these tubes coming out of him. Eventually another doctor returned and said, that he was okay, but that he needed to go into NICU. And so the first time I saw my son, he was carted past me on a little um, sort of table and he had a huge like scuba diving mask on his face and all of these tubes. I didn't get to hold him. He was just taken straight away and I was told, Stephanie, he's your baby. And he was just taken away and I was it was probably the effect of the um, epidural but I was shaking quite a lot I was incredibly cold and I was very I was in a state of shock I think I was then stitched up and uh, 
was Mike with you or was he with Oscar at this point? Uh, at this point, Mike had gone with Oscar and Taniku. So I had some, some comfort in the fact that I knew they were together and I knew that, you know, whatever happened, he would be there. But physically, I just felt completely removed from my body. I felt I couldn't move. I literally could not move. I felt numb. And yeah, so I was taken into recovery. I was kept there for about two hours. I guess they were just sort of, you know, waiting until I was okay. By this point, I think it might have been 3 or 4 a.m. the next day. And then I was taken back to the ward and at first they put me in a room with another lady that had her baby with her (laughs) and I could hear this crying baby and and I said to the midwife could you please see if there's another room because uh, I haven't I I, could you just see if there's another room basically (laughs) I really feel like we've just been through a lot this morning and And to her credit, she found us a private room where my husband could stay with me and where I could try and get some sleep. Although I just sort of lay there wondering, where is my baby and what just happened? Eventually, Mike returned and said to me, look, they found, you know, a shadow on his on his lungs, but he'll be okay. And he's really strong and he's 3.7 kilos. So, you know, luckily it won't take him long to recover. You know, they might have to keep him there for a little while, but but he, they're confident that he'll be okay. I still did feel odd, you know, imagine this, you know, you go into your first labor, you go into hospital and you're spending the first night there expecting to be holding your baby in your arms. But Instead, just sort of wondering if they're alive downstairs, which just sort of seems bizarre. At some point, I can't remember when, but it was some point sort of during in those early morning hours, a nurse did come to me to see if she could uh, get some colostrum. So that sort of happened. Uh, and then she went went back down to the NICU. It was around 10 o'clock the next day. I was woken up by a nurse who sort of, I feel like she prodded me like a cattle actually into the, into the shower stall and said, you need to have a shower. I felt like I'd been hit by a bus and that I couldn't move. And I sort of thought, who is this woman and what is she doing to me? And she sort of hosed me down. You know, I really felt like this is like, you know, a cattle stall or something. And yeah, I was in a lot of pain and, and she said, you'll feel better after a shower, love. But I didn't. I just felt horrendous. Anyway, and then I was put in a wheelchair and they took me down to Niku. I went down to meet him. I became quite emotional when I saw him and uh, he was given to me, placed on my chest. And even though he had a tube in his mouth, he seemed to sort of be wanting to feed. So the nurse asked me if if I'd like to try and yeah, just miraculously he he started to feed as, as soon as he was sort of placed on my chest and that was amazing to me because I knew from stories I'd been told that if separation occurs, you know, the likelihood of, of breastfeeding sort of happening in this organic way is, is slim. I was really amazed by that and I, I became quite emotional, um, I think. And yeah, and it was, it was a really lovely moment. I was still worried about him, but I was really grateful to the team there and the doctors and the nurses in NICU were quite amazing. They were actually really compassionate and really sensitive. They came over to me to help with breastfeeding to give me privacy and to guide me through that in a really sensitive way. And the doctor who essentially saved his life, I suppose, I, I went and found him and, you know, we had a conversation and I thanked him and yeah, was a little bit emotional. So hmm. when you spoke to this doctor, did he talk to you about the birth and what had happened and, Did he or anyone talk to you about implications for future pregnancies? So it actually wasn't until maybe two days later I had a doctor come and visit us and sort of have a debrief, I guess. 
And she said, look, despite your progression in labor and being fully dilated, his abnormal heart rate was the reason that we couldn't allow you to continue laboring. And it was really for his safety and for your safety. That was how it was sort of presented to us. So she sort of said, if, if you want to have a natural birth in future, you know, feel free to do that. And yeah, so I was sort of just given a, a hospital record, I suppose, of what happened. In that record, bizarrely, they wrote as the reason for emergency C-section as failure to progress, which we all love that term. <laughs> but I also just found it kind of in an inaccurate and just completely, yeah, an inaccurate description of what had happened. Particularly as they told you the reason is his heart rate. They didn't really mention the words failure to progress, which can have yeah, a, a bad effect on, on you because you'll feel like it's, it's in my body, yeah, you know. Absolutely. And even failure to progress isn't isn't your fault right so it's it's sort of the language that we use in the hospital system and it can make people feel quite terrible about themselves when they shouldn't. Uh, I think the other thing to consider is that we were told that the cord was actually wrapped all through this process through the labour in the theatre and for the days after immediately afterwards we were not told of this factor until Actually, a midwife from the birth centre came to me and said, you poor thing, I heard that the cord was wrapped. I'm not sure if, if they found it an irrelevant piece of information or they didn't want to concern us at the time. But I certainly think that that played a part and it certainly explained a lot of what happened. I don't know if that affected the outcome or what had actually affected his breathing so poorly. So when you fell pregnant with Max, had you already given thought to how you would like to give birth to him? So I actually, falling pregnant with Max, it was a pregnancy after loss. So it was a very different pregnancy to my first. I felt very protective during the pregnancy. We actually kept tried to keep it a secret until I was almost 30 weeks, I think. Although I think people probably knew. But, you know, I was walking around in clothes that were two sizes too big for me and sort of hunching over and trying to hide my stomach at every chance but I don't know how I did doing that but it's sort of a very different experience because of that I suppose I hadn't given it much thought I was grateful to be pregnant with Max and to be healthy and for him to be a healthy baby that was my focus and I suppose that changed and it shifted throughout the pregnancy. As I started sort of attending clinic visits, it felt as though I was being given lip service, so told, oh, you can try for a VBAC, you know, if you want. But there was no description of how that VBAC would take place, what support I would be given to achieve the VBAC. And so I started to become a little bit suspicious about the hospital and I was sort of wondering, do they really want to give me this opportunity or are they just saying that, that they will support it if that's what I want to do? So I decided it was probably, I can't remember, maybe halfway through the pregnancy, I was looking at some of the courses that they were running at the hospital and one of the courses they were running uh, it was a hypnobirthing course. Don't laugh. <laughs> and, you know, it's, I guess I thought, okay, I'm going to have an open mind and I'm going to do this and, and I'll see what it's like. And so it was once a week on a Thursday night, I would get some time to myself, which is great when you have a toddler. <laughs> And we would do a lot of discussion. It surprised me, actually. It wasn't all breathing in and breathing out. It was a lot of discussion about the history of birth and actually how women have been treated in the hospital system and how we have medicalized the process of birth and how your sort of mental state during labor can be affected by being in a room with machines and different people and... I guess, how, how that affects the birth process and the labour. And I found all of that quite interesting. We were all given a book, uh, Marie Mon, I think it's Marie Monaghan or Marie, 
I'd better get this right now. <laughs> um, I'll get it right. But it, it's it's a hypnobirthing book and we were given sort of just recordings, you know, that you can play on your phone and we were told, you know, try and try and meditate while your toddler has a tantrum. <laughs> um, no, so I would, we would try, I'd try and listen to the meditation to get to sleep at night. And sometimes I think especially with pregnancy after loss, you are sort of crippled in a state of anxiety throughout this whole pregnancy, right? You're sort of thinking, I hope everything is okay. I just want my baby to be healthy. You know, I don't want anything bad to happen. I think this helped me really calm down and really center myself and relax and and get a better sleep. I know it sounds crazy, but you could get a better sleep at night. And, you know, I got to socialize with other people who wanted to give hypnobirthing a try and and learn about it. So I think I saw it more as a learning exercise, not necessarily something that I was going to take on from start to finish. But it sort of, it, it really informed me as well about your birth plan and the things that you're able to say yes or no to in a hospital setting and what you can request. So I I don't know if you know this, but I actually didn't realize that if you feel for any reason that you don't want a midwife or a doctor in the room, you can request a different one. (laughs) You'll seem like a total diva, but apparently you can. And you know what's kind of behind that as well is the fact that you can, if, if you're comfortable with someone and you're developing a rapport with them, that helps you progress through your labor. And that's really the key. And I think if you're keeping yourself calm and happy through the labor, then that's something I think that needs to have more of a focus as well to help women achieve the birth that, that they're sort of happy with. Did you go to a public hospital again and see different midwives at each appointment? Yeah, so we were actually at a different hospital this time just because we've moved, we'd moved areas. It was still in the public system. I actually, I had wanted to change to the private system because I wanted to have that experience and continuity of care. But there are other ways to achieve that care. You can contact doulas, you can have support people. You can actually request, I don't know if you know this, but if you're going into a clinic just for a standard public hospital, you can request to see the same midwife each time, which can help with that continuity. Towards the end, I started to actually request to see the same midwife, (laughs) which was good. And I also met a younger obstetrician at the hospital who actually asked about my story and wanted to hear about everything that had happened. He started to understand where we were coming from, which was really invaluable. He sort of ran through all of the options with me. What would occur if I tried for a VBAC, if it if it didn't work out, you know, what would happen if I went past my due date, what they would be recommending. I think the key thing that I felt was that he was really listening to what I wanted. He knew that I wanted a VBAC and he was willing to support that. Whereas with the others, I felt like it was sort of waving me on. Oh, yeah, sure, you want a VBAC. Everyone wants a VBAC. But, you know, we'll just see about that. And so I think there is a key message in that is to have a provider who is supportive and who's really actually on board uh, with your birth plan. Do you want to now take us through the end stages of your pregnancy with Max? Were you feeling prepared for a VBAC? And tell us how you came to meet him. Well, so I actually, as you know, I I was sort of very open-minded about, you know, should I VBAC, should I not VBAC? But towards the end of my pregnancy, I noticed that the hospital was steering me towards the repeat C-section path and it sort of made me uh, turn around a little bit and I, and I felt a bit like, no, hold on. I'd actually like to be more in control of the process and I would like to give, it, give V back a go and to actually do that. So I became, I strengthened my resolve. <laughs> And I contacted the lady. She was the hypnobirthing educator. She also acts as a doula and support person. She really 
understood the need of advocating for natural births in hospital settings. But she also had this amazing ability to to view birth as something not to be feared and to take you through the process in a way that you were in control of what was happening to you and you were no longer a, a victim or a damsel in distress. You sort of became a person that... You know, you were having a baby and there's that was a natural process that that your body was prepared for and that your body could do. And she recognized my need my need to experience a natural birth and to hold my baby. And I think she really she understood. So with that in mind, I sort of said to her, Look, I know that you're not my doula. I know this is also really last minute, but I wonder if you could attend my birth as a support person. And she she said that she'd love to and that she would she would try to and to just let her know when I was going into labor and on my way to the hospital. But that was actually only a week before I gave birth. <laughs> so it was really last minute, but I really felt a good connection with her and I really felt that I trusted her and that was important for me to have. So, yeah, when I went into labour with Max, I was at home and I knew from the research I'd done and, and from the classes I'd taken that it was – and also just from speaking to you and speaking to other people I knew who had had VBACs that you had the best chance if you could stay at home for as long as possible, as long as was bearable and safe obviously you know contacting the hospital I had contacted them and said look just letting you know I'm experiencing my contractions and I might be coming in soon and I was sort of I kept contact with them contractions started about six o'clock that night by 11 o'clock it was becoming oh god should I go to the hospital now actually I had my mum here minding my toddler and she said to me no I think you're okay just try and hang on <laughs> not that that should replace medical advice but but my mum is another person that I really trust who actually wasn't a part of the first birth and I, I felt I felt like you know what I'm glad that she's here and I'm glad that she's telling me you can do it you know you can do this this isn't unnatural it's not a medical emergency and it doesn't need to be this is the process, this is how it's meant to happen. Yeah, I drew on that trust, but also on a lot of, you know, just the resources that I'd used during the pregnancy that had told me how to manage those initial contractions. And I spoke to the hospital about one o'clock and I told them I was coming in. At about one thirty. we got to the hospital. And by this stage, I could feel things were progressing. And as you arrive, the hospital's sort of interested in doing their paperwork and checking that, you know, all of the protocols are met and they wanted to obviously do a cervical check. I wasn't really comfortable with that. I was sort of trying to resist but not knowing what to do. I was in pain. It was then that Helen, my support person, arrived. <laughs> the minute that she arrived, the nurse stepped back from me. <laughs> It was really amazing. It was just, so she had this presence that just, she said, what do you need right now? And I, I said, look, I just want to get in the shower. I'm having contractions that are really close and I just need to get in the shower and ease some of that pain. And she said, right, let's just go hop in the shower. In the meantime, the nurse that was trying to sort of admit me <laughs> was sort of like, oh, um, don't get in the shower yet because we need to fill out this paperwork and da-da-da. But that was just all overruled by, you know, me just taking my clothes off and getting in the shower. <laughs> I, think, I think for a lot of people, and especially when it's your first time, you think, oh, I have to listen to them. And, and look, you do have to listen to them at times, but there are also other times where you can use your common sense and everything that they say doesn't need to be gospel. I actually found that that helped me cope and I did that. I hopped in the shower, then they admitted me to the, the ward. I was shown to a room. This all happened without a cervical check. I knew by this point that my labour had progressed. I could feel it progressing. The other thing about VBAC that's often sort of 
highly contested is the need for continual fetal monitoring. So uh, they had a doppel that they wanted to put around my waist. I sort of wanted to be in the shower, so that wasn't compatible, (laughs) obviously, with that. So I hopped in the shower and this lovely, very polite Japanese nurse kept coming back to me to put the doppel on my on my stomach and feel for a heartbeat. So so she was still able to do that monitoring intermittently and I was still able to get the pain relief that I needed. I felt that the water was really helping. I wanted to get into the bath, but I was told that would not be possible. So I didn't get in the bath, but my support person said, you know, next time you just go over to that bath, run the water and hop in. <laughs> so I sort of, I, I love the way that she would approach things like that. And yes, you should take the medical advice that you're given, but, you know, in another way, just take it with a grain of salt and listen to your body and, and do what your body needs to do. Yeah, so... The labour was progressing. At this stage, the only pain relief I'd had was from the shower, which was great. I could feel the pain sort of intensifying. I got out of the shower and I said to my support person, I need something. Could you go and get me something, please? Could someone get me something? It was a bit more, it was a bit of a higher register. I was yelling by this point. (laughs) Sounds like transition, maybe? It was was definitely transition. And it was also funny because in all of my classes with Helen, she'd sort of said, you know, not that you try and stay silent, but you try and stay calm. So, So as you're experiencing that pain try not to yell. So uh, here I was like this, (laughs) can I please have something? So she, she sort of said, yes, yes, it's coming. It's coming. And I know now, and, and she knew at the time that I was just going through transition. And, and when you go through transition, you go through a phase where you feel like you just can't take it anymore. And it's just your body playing a trick on you because you can, and you move past that into final state so yeah so which position were you as you approached the (laughs) this final stage of Steph so at that stage when I was in a lot of pain I was on the floor I was out of the shower so I'd been standing for most of it and I found that worked well and then I moved (laughs) do you really want me to say Yes, I moved onto the floor and I was on my hands and knees on the floor and I was sort of bearing down with the pain. So the other thing we're sort of told a lot of is to work with gravity. So I was trying to do that and to move down into that position. Then at one point I do remember, I have to say, I do remember the midwife trying to monitor and get a heartbeat and I was going through a contraction. So she was pressing down on my stomach as I was experiencing the contraction, which is really quite painful. And so at one point, I just grabbed her hand and moved it away. (laughs) It's instincts taking over at this point, I think. I think it was. It was was just becoming that way. And yeah, I mean, the other amazing thing was that, you know, of course, I'm completely naked and in this very compromising position, right, as you are in labour. And you have a variety of people in the room, you don't know who they are. You have to be okay with that. But one person who showed up was the obstetrician from the clinic who I was talking about before, who was sort of really on board. So it was really fortuitous that he turned up that night and was allocated to my room. And he sort of walked in and said, hi, Steph. (laughs) And it was, you know, I just thought, oh, thank God you're here. (laughs) It was, it was amazing. I just, I sort of thought that it was a twist of fate. So then I can't remember how this happened, but they had said to me that they wanted me up on the bed in a sort of upright position. I think that they wanted to be able to see his head descending and they wanted to be able to monitor a little bit more of what was going on. So here's another example of them sort of taking back. So it's not necessarily what's comfortable for the woman being in that position, but it works 
for the doctors and for the staff to be able to see you and to see what's going on. I think in those situations, if you can get the right midwife or the right team, they'll work with the woman on where she is and they'll come down to her position. It's really a lot of that is left up to luck and sort of who and what's happening on the day. There was uh, one at Max's birth, there was one particular midwife who was, (laughs) I guess, she was sort of one of those old school midwives. She was a little bit harsh and she started saying to me, uh, the doctors are getting really tetchy, they're wanting to take you into surgery. And at this point, I was really almost at the end. I don't know if it was sort of her way of getting me through that final stage. And I think, you know, those sorts of things can affect people in a positive way, but also in a negative way. At this point, I mean, I'd gotten to the hospital at one thirty, and he was born at, at 4. So, so looking back for her to say that was just ridiculous because, I mean, who was getting tetchy? How long had I been there? Whose bed was I taking up? I mean, I think that's one of the problems that we do see in the public system. I'm not sure if that occurs in private or, or what the situation is. But, you know, there's you definitely put on a time limit and that's incongruous. It's in, inconsistent with achieving a natural birth and being on a natural time frame and also being in the mindset where you're allowed to progress to that without being told, tut tut, time to go. <laughs> yeah, so then at the final stage, I think the doctor came and said to me, we need to give this baby its eviction notice. <laughs> so, you know, um, I was pushing, I was in those final stages. Was this involuntary pushing? Did you feel – was it coached or did you feel the urges yourself? Interesting. Interesting because, you know, in hypnobirthing we're sort of told don't allow anyone to coach you or to yell at you to push. That was exactly what occurred, I have to say, unfortunately. So I was sort of told to hold on and then to push, push and bear down. I think it's interesting because one part of the birthing community are sort of – in tune with the language with a different type of language so you could tell a woman to bear down or breathe through rather than giving things names like push or contraction or pain they're sort of using different language and in order to help sort of the mindset and to change the medicalized experience of birth so yeah oftentimes Helen my support person was sort of telling me to bear down rather than push. So she, I had her sort of in my ear saying, bear down and you can do it and keep going. And whereas at the other end, I had the midwife saying, push, push, <laughs> harder, harder. So yeah, it's just interesting the contrast in the language and the effect that it can have on people. At this point, I, I don't know. I can't remember what Mike was doing. I think he was in a bit of a state. He was quite stressed. I think he was just hoping everything would go okay. He was on the other side supporting me. And Max was born. He didn't have very much hair, they were saying. And they they lifted him up onto my chest. So I had never experienced this before, which was an amazing feeling. And I just couldn't believe that I'd done it, that I'd I'd given birth to him, that I'd had a V-back, that it had happened. And I was just completely elated. I just felt I get goosebumps even speaking about it now because I felt on top of the world and I was so proud of myself. (laughs) It's so wonderful. Really, it is. So Obviously, you had the skin to skin immediately with Max, which would have been just so wonderful for you to experience since your experience with Oscar was completely different yes it was so they did do the initial sort of testing on him you know on a very nearby table but he was in my sight the whole time and he was able to breastfeed straight away I was just looking at him just amazed just thinking are you okay are you breathing are you you know I was just sort of I couldn't believe that there was this you know, a live little baby that had made it out okay, despite being told that it was dangerous to <laughs> attempt this back or that maybe I was placing him in danger or his, you know, that, that his heart rate could be problematic. You know, obviously bringing all of those things from my first birth, that they were all in my mind. And so for me, 
it was really incredible to have that experience and and to see that he was okay yeah and how about Mike how was he after little Max was born he was quite emotional yeah he's he was I think he was in shock as well you know and I think he was oh you know sort of thinking wow here he is and I can't believe that just happened and (laughs) he was just overwhelmed and amazed and I felt that he was proud of me too and you know ultimately it was just this feeling that I had about myself that that I had done this and that it, it just felt you know yes you have those pain those pains in labor but it sort of felt okay I've never run a marathon but it felt like I'd run a marathon so my body was sore but I had this feeling of empowerment and strength that I hadn't experienced before in birth it was the first baby that hadn't been taken away from me and that was a really important moment for me beautiful stuff can I just ask if you had any tearing at all yeah so no one actually speaks to you about that at the time but I think I had one or two stitches down there and then there was active management of third stage labor so where they're waiting for the placenta and there was a little bit of a moment where my support person Helen said you know can you just wait give her more time for the placenta to come out naturally but they had already stuck a needle in my leg (laughs) so you know and and there's so much going on in that room that you you're in another world so you don't you don't have a say on that and that is one reason why it's important to have someone advocating on your behalf obviously not everything can go to plan and you know in some situations you need to be open to those things anyway the lights were on and they were trying to manually remove the placenta so the placenta was stuck I didn't care. I was on cloud nine by this point. I was sort of holding Max and thinking, okay, you know, I did it. It's over. I didn't care about whatever else was going on down there. You know, <laughs> it was feeding. But then after about maybe 10 minutes, they called in one of the obstetricians who I think was the head of the hospital. And he said, let's just have a look at what's going on here. And he tried to do uh, what he could, but it Emanually, yeah, but it, it was stuck to a blood clot on the wall, so there was no way that it was it was coming out by itself. So, so this is really funny and kind of ironic, but they carted me into theatre, <laughs> and they said we're really sorry, but you're going to need to have a spinal epidural, and uh, we're going to do manual removal of the placenta. So again, the hospital, you know, was well within their rights to do that and I agreed with the decision and by this point I didn't care right I'd gotten my V back so but it was kind of just just funny you know in a black comedy kind of way and then I was taken into theatre they gave me the spinal epidural it's funny because by the time I got into theatre that was probably half an hour after the birth and was experiencing back to back another contraction so those contractions I believe maybe if they had been left to come on I don't know could they have sort of could it sort of naturally have happened again I don't know but I was experiencing those on the on the table those contractions are to get the the placenta out they they come for the yeah so so I I sort of do wonder I wonder about that Anyway, so then uh, they performed a manual removal of the placenta in surgery. Mike was a baby again. Yes, so again, Mike got a special bonding time with Max this time, which was really lovely. I knew he was being looked after. I also knew at this point, you know, that the hospital was taking care of me. I, I did trust them. Yeah, you know, it wasn't ideal, but these things happen and they were doing what they had to do. So then during during that surgery, they removed the placenta. But I know during that process, I had a loss of blood. It was enough for them to keep me in hospital for maybe four or five days until my levels came back up again because they were quite low. So my haemoglobin was low but uh, not low enough to sort of mean I had to have a transfusion. Um, I think I passed out during the 
when I was in theatre and I came to again and I think they said that was a part of the blood, blood loss and low blood pressure and I had sort of come to again and said what's going on um so that was a bit of a scary feeling and the, the other crazy thing is that you've had this natural birth experience and then you go in to this this experience and it really for me showed just the stark contrast between being completely out of control and being in control of a process and the difference I even have photos of me in the birthing room looking you know happy and with Max in my arms and then photos of me feeding Max when I've come out of the theatre and I look like a different person so I thought that was that was really interesting at the time yeah now that you've sort of gone through both experiences having a cesarean and then having a natural birth with with Max how would you feel the two compare when I woke up after having Oscar I have said to many people and I would still say that having that going through the labour and then having an emergency Caesar, I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. I had pain in my body that was a result of, I don't know, you know, labour obviously and pushing and, and then I had the pain of the surgery, which was huge. I mean, it's, you know, they're cutting into your abdominal wall. I could barely get up to go to the bathroom or make a cup of tea. After I had Max, I felt as though I I didn't feel the pain in the same way. I mean, yes, you know, you get pain after natural birth and I, I still had stitches and I was in a little bit of pain down there, but I could pick him up. I could walk around. I could look after him. I could do things for myself. I could look after my toddler as well and Oscar obviously is a handful (laughs) so I could still run after him you know I I did have help some help as well but yeah I still felt physically that I was capable after that and I I understand everyone's experience is different as well for elective seizures I think the recovery time is said to be you know different or a little bit shorter depending on your mindset but so I'm not sure if that plays a part as well. And how did you feel mentally? I felt positive and I just had this, I I think we were saying it could have been the rush of oxytocin, but I I felt on top of the world and I felt really great. I felt as though I could do this. I was very calm with Max. I feel as though I really connected with him in a different way. And because I'd had this really positive experience at the hospital and that I'd been more in control of the situation. I was proud of myself. I was happy. And I was approaching things with, with a really positive mindset. Um, and so I think for women attempting VBAC, I think that's another outcome that, yeah, that we don't always speak about. So when you go home, you're still sort of feeling the benefits of, of doing something for yourself and for your body and, and being in control. I would always tell anyone who was asking me that I would V back over C-section any day in my experience. Thank you for listening to this V back birth story. If you like the show, please subscribe and feel free to leave a review. If you would like to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for V back birth stories. If you have a question or you'd like to express interest in sharing your personal story, email us at feedbackbirthstories at gmail.com. VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.